Welcome to Horangi Cybersecurity's Ask a CISO podcast. Come with us as we take a deep dive behind the scenes with the world's top cybersecurity leaders to get insights into security issues you care about. Before we take off, please help us grow by taking just a few seconds to like and subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And leave us a review letting us know what you think of the podcast and how we can improve. All right. Welcome to this episode of the Ask a CISO podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Snyder, founder and CEO of Firetail. You can find us online at firetail.io. On this episode, we are delighted to have Tyler Young join us. Tyler is the Chief Information Security Officer at Big ID with a proven track record of building security programs and developing innovative security strategies. Tyler has extensive experience leading and partnering cross-functionally with stakeholders in hyper-growth startups to solve complex business problems. Tyler is passionate about developing diverse teams and investing in people's professional growth. Tyler also has an established reputation for developing go-to-market security products focused on enabling engineering team workflows and simplifying security. Tyler, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today and Happy New Year. It's great to have you on one of our first episodes of the season. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. Awesome, me too. So what kind of year was 2022 for you? It was quite a year out in the broader world. I mean, what were some of your experiences, highlights, lowlights, anything you'd want to share from how 2022 played out for you? Yeah, so 2022 for me was, I would say, a pretty important year. I think it was the year that I landed my first CISO gig after being at Relativity for almost five years prior, building out their security program called their seven. And it was the first time I had the opportunity to kind of build out my own program. And so joining Big ID was a year of big things, I guess, if you will. Re-establishing the security program at Big ID, building out and hiring out an entire team globally. It's been fun. It's been an amazing ride. I'm looking forward to what 2023 has in store. Awesome, awesome. Well, thinking about that, as you went through that transition, you know, kind of stepping into the CISO role for the first time and building out a program, what was maybe some of the lessons that you learned going through that process? Because I'm sure there was a lot of learning, even though you've had an extensive history building out security practices, I'm sure, you know, taking that C level and, and taking that step up must have been an interesting experience with some new learnings. <clears throat> I think um, the, the most important learning is that while strategic concepts can transfer from company to company, the inner workings of the engineering team, the underlying architecture, the policies and the way the company operates are completely different from business to business. And having to adapt your security strategy business to business is something that you can't really teach. And it's something that you need to kind of immerse yourself in the company and the culture and the tech at the business to see where the gaps are, how to best secure it, how to best partner with certain parts of the organization. And so for me, it was really, it was really much of any, any assumptions that I had going in and how I was gonna build out a strategy and how I was gonna work with certain stakeholders conceptually were there, but I had to really build on the fly and revamp my strategy as I was going. Yeah, we've had a number of CISOs on here who talk about, you know, taking taking the CISO role with an organization that they're just joining and how one of the first things that they have to do is actually align to the business and make sure that what they're doing is not just, you know, security programs that they've known, to your point, you know, that the actual set of practices may be very different and the business operations might be very different from organization to organization, even if kind of cyber first principles remain largely the same. So how do you think about asking the questions that you need to ask to understand how you do align with the business? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, like what I did was really worked with the engineering leadership and understood both architecturally how things were being built 
and then operationally how customers were leveraging the product to ensure that one, backend systems are being accessed correctly and securely. And then two, the front end experience for the customer is seamless and secure by default. So like uh, ensuring that passwordless things are happening uh, for logins and that the backend systems are leveraging just-in-time and self-service and that our CICD pipelines are being scanned efficiently and vulnerabilities are being reduced. And so like you can't really get to that point until you really understand how things are being built and being leveraged. Yeah, that's it's really interesting to hear. So when you come into an organization, you've got to understand what's going on, how things are running. And you mentioned something there that I, I really think is often overlooked. A lot of us come from technology backgrounds. So one of the first things we're keen to understand is what's the tech stack? How is tech being produced? You know, what are the elements of the build pipeline? What is our CICD platform built on? But understanding the people process around that, I think is got to be equally important, more important. What would you say? Potentially even more important. I mean, when it comes to fully automated security, there's always going to be an aspect that's not fully automated and where the human interaction happens. And that's where the attackers are trying to leverage. It's the developer leaving a secret in a code repository. It's the unfettered access that happens by a support person. And those are the compromises that happen that eventually take down businesses and lead to the the large-scale breaches. Yeah. We've seen any number of examples of exactly what you're talking about. I'll never forget, you know, I used to work at AWS a long, long time ago in the early days of cloud. And I remember this kind of apocryphal story of sometime around 2014 or 15, you know, some company who left a secret in a repo that was up on GitHub. And it was a complete set of credentials. You know, it was an access key and a secret key. And somebody got those and basically wiped out their entire business. It was a hosting company built on AWS, and it was the production environment and the backups were all just deleted. And boom, that company went out of business, I guess, the very next day. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Those kind of little things that we leave around have a way of coming back to bite us. It's one of the things where we had a conversation with the CISO recently around cyber hygiene and why people kind of overlook hygiene as a practice. But that's got to be something that's really important, especially in automated environments. How do you think about getting your teams to embrace that concept? Or do you think about kind of bringing in enforcement mechanisms more as a first priority? I I think um, you can't protect um, what you don't know or what you can't see. And so fundamentally, we're using our own product internally to do that. We're leveraging Big ID to connect to our code repositories and scan for secrets and tokens. We're leveraging Big ID to scan Slack and, and G Drive and S3, looking for confidential documents and sensitive data and understanding where that data is at. Because once you understand where those key elements are and those key, those secrets or, or whatever those like key X are, when you know where they're at, then you can have a security strategy and provide defense and depth around them. But if you don't know where they're at, you can never secure it. It, it goes back yeah. to like, you, you can't protect what you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a a great segue here. So tell us a little bit about Big ID. I mean, you've mentioned kind of some of the capabilities already, but for those who aren't familiar, give us kind of a high level. What what is Big ID? What do you guys do? What are the problems that you help customers solve? Yeah, I mean, essentially, Big ID is an extensible data security platform, data privacy platform that enables organizations to really understand their data and take action on it, whether it's for privacy or a protection perspective. Today, customers are using Big ID to proactively discover, manage, protect, and really get more value out of where their sensitive data, regulated data, personal data is ultimately stored across their landscape. So then you can build those holistic security strategies around it. 
So you think about kind of data discovery as maybe a first step towards building a little bit of a data inventory and then analysis of that inventory and then yeah. recommendations, automations that come out of that? Yeah, exactly. It fits in the category of DSPM or data security posture management. It's understanding your data and then collating risks from that data that then you can take action on. And that's fundamentally what needs to happen. It's understand where things are at, understand the risks and highlight the risks that are there, and then be able to take action on it and remediate those risks. That's And that's fundamentally what security teams need. They just need a platform or tools to be able to do it quickly. Because as you know, there's thousands of alerts happening from every system we have in the environment, and you can't manually review it all on its own. Yeah. And so how do you think about reducing that noise that all of the security operations people are dealing with on a daily basis? How do you think about kind of boiling that down to actual signal that needs to be acted upon? So th there's a few ways, I think, and it really depends on where it's coming from. So one, you may need to go to the source and tune what your classifiers or what you're being identified as, as certain risks. Every business has different risks and different types of appetite, and you have to understand what normal is for your organization. Sometimes automation scripts that are running from engineering may look like accessing your S3 buckets and copying data, but really it may just be a backup. And so it's really being able to normalize that in your detection systems. Two, you need to be able to have a really good security engineering team that can look at all the alerts at scale, leverage machine learning algorithms and models, and really start shrinking what's actually legitimate. And really, finally, it's making sure that you're looking at the things you care about and understanding where those crown jewels are at, which is kind of like what I mentioned of understanding where your critical data is at, really focusing on those. And that's the telemetry you need to bubble up quicker than some of the other things that may just be tertiary. Yeah, you raise a really interesting point there for me. And I've been kind of thinking about this for a long time in my own career. I ran cyber operations for two companies early in my career, both SaaS companies, early stage, kind of late 90s, early 2000s to date myself. And one of the organizations that I was with, we were breached and we were breached on an FTP server that we had out there for public customer support cases. And when that breach happened, what ended up happening was that one of this FTP server actually got turned into a porn distribution server, some, some community on some forum shared links mm -hmm. and so on. And our bandwidth just shot through the roof. And that's how we actually ended up learning about this breach was when we got the bandwidth bill. But the point of all of this is, you know, it's one data element and in our, in our scenario, it was really one FTP server that got breached. It's always about the data. And yet so often when I go into organizations and I talk to customers about what they're doing for security, one of the very first things that I hear from them is, oh, it's I've got firewall this, I've got intrusion detection that. I'm you know, so much focus on the network layer and so much focus on network security. I still see a big disconnect between you know, what attackers are actually after, data, and where mm -hmm. companies kind of prioritize a lot of their first cybersecurity investments. Why do you think that disconnect exists? I don't necessarily know the exact reason for it. I think a lot of times deploying a firewall or deploying an IDS knock off some of the low-hanging fruit, which could lead to the big breach. I think when you start focusing on the crown jewels and your data, you start talking about more sophisticated type attacks. And I think there's a disbelief from a lot of people that, oh, it won't happen to us. And so let's just focus on the low-hanging fruit, save the business some money, and just kind of continue with business as usual. But fundamentally, if you look at MITRE or you look at the Lockheed Martin kill chain, to the right on both of them, it talks about data exfiltration and the attacker achieving their objectives, which at the end of the day, achieving their objectives means exfilling data, encrypting data, essentially for monetary gain or for information gathering gain, whether if you're like a nation state. 
And so yeah. it's, it's very interesting that up until now, there wasn't even a category for data security posture. Um, yeah. And, and I'm, I think we're moving in the right direction. And I think breach after breach, regulatory fine after regulatory fine is starting to push it that way. Yeah. And especially in the age of cloud, when, you know, kind of where your data lives is so different than it was historically, where, for instance, mm-hmm. things like firewalls and IDSs may not even be the applicable. Like you tell me yeah. how you put an IDS on an S3 bucket. I don't really know a mechanism to do something like that. Yeah. And I mean, firewalls, sure, you've got, you know, you've got bucket policies, you've got IP restrictions, you've got public private switches, et cetera. So you do have some security controls around it. Yeah. But it's not quite the same as, you know, putting it three layers deep behind a firewall and a DMZ and then a private net and then an internal subnet. Right. It's a very different kind of landscape. Yeah. And I think that different landscape is changing rapidly for almost every business, right? We are all leveraging zero trust principles and decentralizing our environments so that when the attacker gets in, it's no longer just compromise one system and move laterally to the file server, dump all that data. It's now focused on identities, which then kind of go back and tie to your role in the business and what data you have access to fundamentally. So I I think the strategy and security is changing rapidly. And the fact that, like you mentioned, that's three bucket and, and critical data being there, a single script could completely move data from one place to another and potentially delete data or yeah and make a simple like fat fingering key could breach the entire company yeah absolutely you mentioned something there a second ago that i want to kind of dive into and you mentioned identity how does identity security connect to data security in your mind i think it goes back to like role-based access access controls and Fundamentally, if you're looking at critical data or sensitive data in your environment, you need to start by who has access to the data and who needs to have access to the data. I think a lot of companies, if they leverage the DSPM product, they would start to identify like, wow, we have a lot of people that have access to a lot of critical data that they don't need access to. And so I think it goes back to leveraging role-based access controls, tying that to an identity and ensuring that least privilege is happening across the environment. Yeah, it's again, one of those things where you kind of see like, a lot of times the organization's technology teams move a little bit faster than security. And so you kind of end up in the situation where you got to start with the catalog, as you mentioned, with kind of the DSPM Mm -hmm. model, or let's say with the data discovery, and then you kind of cataloging it and figuring out who should have access to what. And that is one of those questions that I think a lot of organizations really struggle to answer. They might be able to conceptually to kind of give you that answer. If you say on a whiteboard, you could maybe build a matrix or a grid of systems and so on. But when you get the actual inventory, it very seldom matches that pretty clean picture that you've got on the whiteboard. How do you think about kind of making corrective changes once you realize whether it's your organization or whether you're talking to a customer and you realize, okay, something's out of whack here. You've got more access than you should have, or you've got more systems Mm -hmm. than you realize you need to bring them into compliance with policy. What would be some of your, let's say, best practices for doing that in a way that's super non-disruptive? Because a lot of the time security organizations have this reputation of coming in and, you know, applying like a very hard hammer to a situation. Of course where maybe a gentle tap is needed. Yeah, and I don't even know if a tap at all is needed. A lot of times people want to do the right thing, whether you're a developer or you're the finance person, they want to do the right thing. They just may not be aware of it. And so it's this comes back to coming into a new organization like I just did, and it's really understanding the business appetite for security, the knowledge and where they're at in their security journey, and getting everybody up to speed on how things should be done. I fundamentally do not believe that hammering down on people and saying this is absolutely needs to happen because security said so, that's the wrong way of doing it. And it's destined to fail. 
you absolutely have to get buy-in from every single stakeholder. And I think a lot of times with data security problems, fundamentally, you need to put the onus back on the stakeholder. So if you're in finance, you need to work with them and help them understand the, the, the problem that they're you know potentially bringing to the environment or to the company and show them and build guardrails to how they can protect against that. So if it's, you can only yeah. store data in this one folder and this folder is locked down to specific people, you put guardrails in place. So when that finance person copies their data back to that S3 bucket where it's supposed to be stored, it's encrypted and it can only be accessed by finance, and maybe the CFO. And so it's really building these guardrails, whether it's developers or finance or HR or whoever it may be. And in your experience, I mean, when you sit down with people and you try to, let's say, kind of educate them and partner with them, you generally get better outcomes than when you kind of try to bring down the hammer, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I can honestly say that in 12 years of building and being involved in security programs, bringing down the hammer does not work. It yeah. leads to people hiding things from security and you, do, you want people to be upfront. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things that we used to hear quite frequently you know, I spent some time working in the cloud security posture management space. And in the early days of that, we often got pushback from people who said, no, 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 I don't need cloud security posture management, which just like, you know, what you described with Big ID, we would come in after the fact. And the first step is discover and kind of catalog what you actually had. And they would say, no, 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 I'm just going to put everything through this kind of very guardrail oriented process where you can only do the things that you're allowed to do. And what we found, though, over time on the cloud side, and I'd be curious what your observations are on the data side, what we found on the cloud side was that people would just bypass those guardrails at some point. You know, if those guardrails were holding them back, they were a developer and they needed to spin up two new EC2 instances to test this build or a new RDS instance to, you know, test some data storage or what have you, and they weren't allowed to do that, they would just go around it. Do you see similar kind of patterns on the data side? I think you're always going to see people trying to circumvent process and guardrails. And of course, it's happened on the data side as well. We're also a, a large consumer of the CSPM product as well. So we leverage a CSPM internally as well. And I think it goes back to building that security appetite and where your key risks are. So for production, absolutely not. That's not happening. It's completely locked down to the point where a single developer could not spin something up. But we built a demo type environment where they can do that. They can pull down systems and they have more freedom within certain reasons. And there's security pr protocols being in place and they're pulling from templated form, like templated forms that say they can have these certain ports open and this certain access and it's torn down after this amount of days. So it, it really goes back to your security appetite. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're always going to have the large customer needs something done now. We need to get it done now for X amount of dollars. That's always going to happen. But it's again... Are there controls in place so that it can't happen? And if it does happen, it's yeah. happening in an environment that's controlled. Yeah, yeah. So data is one of these areas where I've wondered about this for a long time as somebody who's been on the kind of the tools provider side, especially in the cloud space. One of the advantages that we had from the cloud perspective was we couldn't see any customer's data. And so from our perspective, all we saw was kind of a list of assets, if you will, you know, your instances, your VPC networks, your mm -hmm. load balancers, et cetera. We saw IDs, we could see configurations, we could maybe see tags, but we couldn't see what data was inside any of those systems. I wonder for you guys working on data classification and things like that, how do you balance this tension where to some extent you need to be able to actually read the data to give customers an informed view so that they can sure. kind of assess or rank the risk around it. But at the same time, I imagine you don't actually want to keep that data. You don't want to be in possession of the data. How do you process that and how do you manage that or balance that tension? 
Yeah. So, so we actually do not pull back customer data at all. So we deploy machine okay. learning models that essentially analyze the data, find potentially a social security number or data that may look like it, run analysis on top of the data and provide metadata pointers that come back in our product. And so when those metadata pointers are in the product, that that is still encrypted at rest. And so the only way it happens that a customer can review it is in the UI. But in the UI, then they still don't see the data. They see social security number potentially found in or PII found in whatever you set those classifiers at found in X file. Okay. Okay. So analysis in place and then returning metadata rather than the data ever kind of transitioning over to you guys. Exactly. I mean, fundamentally, the, okay. the risk involved with pulling in customer data is so significant that as a CISO, I don't know that there's an appetite for that. Well, exactly. And that's why I asked the question. And I appreciate your transparency and candor in answering it, as I'm sure our audience does as well. That's fantastic. So and I think change gears for a second. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, please. And, and I was going to say, I think that's with any product, whether it's your, I mean, as every security vendor is leveraging some type of SaaS solution. They're pulling back telemetry. They're pulling back all this really important audit data from everything that that they're collecting from your system. I think it's really important to even leverage your own, bring your own key functionality where those customers or those providers don't even have access to any of the data. And they do what they need to do to provide that technology service or that blocking capability. But at the end of the day, that data is encrypted. And if I don't want them to access the back end of the system and see that data, I should be able to pull the key and not make it so they can. Yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, I think controlling your own keys is something that a lot of organizations, that's another one where a lot of customers kind of face that decision point and they have to make that risk assessment. You know, how much additional overhead is there for me to do customer managed keys as opposed to kind of using the server provided keys? And then you have to make a decision what makes sense for your organization, which I guess kind of goes back to assessing the organization's appetite for risk and for security process and so on. I want to shift gears for a second and talk about you and your career. You mentioned that you've been doing this for more than 10 years. I think I saw that you started your career as a security intern with one of the government agencies. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Yep. What did you learn as you kind of, so it sounds like you've kind of, you know, worked your way up from the proverbial mailroom up to the top job. What have you learned along the way and how have you had to grow personally to grow into this role? Yeah, I mean, without getting into too much detail, what I was doing as an intern, I think um, the job that happens at a lot of the government agencies goes unthinked, and mm-hmm. they're doing the work to keep us all safe day in and day out, right? It was eye-opening, and it gives me this deep respect for anybody that's in those public service jobs, keeping us all safe day in and day out, is what I would say. As far as learning, I think, you know, as far as like the trajectory of careers and really building on your career, I think the one thing is always be hungry to learn. And and I think when you stop learning, you should realize you're in the wrong place and you should find something new. Because at the end of the day, no matter how, no matter how much you get paid or how much, you know, whatever, how fulfilling the job is, if you're not learning, you're not in the right place. Yeah, it's, it's such a great point. I myself have kind of transitioned career trajectories three times along the way, you know, from being that back-end person who carried a pager and you know, ran data centers and was on call and responding to cyber incidents. And ultimately that wasn't for me after about seven or eight years. I did, to your point, I felt like I wasn't learning anymore and I wasn't appreciated. I think all IT and cybersecurity people can kind of relate to that, you know, feeling of not necessarily being appreciated when everything's going great. Nobody says anything, right? 
Um, so Absolutely. yeah, I think that's, that's a great learning. Well, Tyler, we're coming up to the end of the show. I've got kind of one final question for you. I know Big ID just published some data security predictions for 2023. Are there any kind of high level thematic elements from that, that you can share with us or any specific points that you could share and where can people learn more about that if they're interested? Yeah. So if you're interested in more of our data security trends and security trends for the next year. They're posted on our Big ID website. You can see them under the blogs and see it under some of the marketing material we have on LinkedIn. I mean, fundamentally, I think the coming year, we're going to see significant amount of tool consolidation, whether that's vendors buying other vendors and really meshing tools together, but ultimately without compromising security because it's not going anywhere. Funding may change for some of the startups, but ultimately the same problems are going to be there. I think we saw like chat GPT, things like that. I think you're going to have, this is maybe a hot take, but I think you're going to have a rise of protective AI and, and how machines can learn on the fly to better protect you. So whether that's on the detection side, whether that's on the data discovery side, I think you're going to see a little bit more of that. And I think things like cloud breaches are going to continue to propagate. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think as more companies and customers continue to leverage cloud data sources and cloud in general, I think there's a learning curve for a lot of organizations. And I think, like yeah. I mentioned before, one fat finger, one simple key being deployed in a Git repo that's published externally could cause a breach for your entire environment. And so it's really just a complete knowledge shift into cloud and some of the main issues there. Yeah, we've seen that continuously. There's that learning curve to deal with and customers kind of understanding their side of the shared responsibility model and what they need to manage. And that's true for cloud. That's true for data. Tyler Young, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today. And again, if you want any more information about the research that we discussed at the end, you can find that on the Big ID website. Tyler, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Ask a CISO podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's been great. 